Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Third Degree Burn. This is our part two of our X-Men coverage of the first appearance of Alpha Flight. If you've listened to our previous episode, we covered uh, uh, X- Uncanny X-Men number 120. Now we're going to be covering X-Men, Uncanny X-Men number 121. And Brian, do you want to give us some information about it? Well, you know, before we get into that, that. Um, I, I did find something else today that I thought that was really, really cool. Uh, in a previous episode, we did uh, the Fumetis, uh, or, or covered uh, the Star Trek Star Trek Fumetis in our Star Trek specials. And one of, the, one of the things that we brought up was the fact that, you know, uh, Berm was able to get the likeness rights to all the cast and crew, and he'd only had some, apparently he'd had some trouble getting some likeness rights. And... We had discovered that in the Harry Mudd story that he did, that um, he never showed Harry Mudd's face. He showed him from the back of the head and others. And then ultimately he had Harry Mudd go through a process or was forced to go through a process that made him look like uh, Captain Kirk. Kirk, yeah. Um, so what I found out, and this is directly from Burns' webpage somewhere deep in the forum, is that likeness protection extends beyond death in an odd way. And this is a quote from John Byrne. For instance, I've been told I cannot use the likeness of Roger C. Carmel, not because he specifically forbade it, but because he did not sign off on it before he died, and he has no heirs to do it for him. Oh, see, I would think that the family could stop that, but if, yeah, if he's... Yeah, yeah, he never married. He never married, um, and and as I understand it, he was really, really good friends with George Takai, but that doesn't mean anything. Not that there's anything wrong with <laughs> that. that. There's, yeah. Uh, maybe speculation. Okay, but uh, yeah, I mean, as far as likeness rights, you know, he didn't he didn't have any idea how all that worked. And to me, that's one of those things. That I'm just like, wait a minute, the guy has passed on. It's been he he died in in eighty five, so it's been thirty years since he's passed on. And so, why can't he use the guy's likeness? Well, well that's a question. When would something like that fall into? Public, public domain. domain, yeah. I mean, you're probably looking anywhere from 50 to 75 years for for public domain rights, but I, you know, it's it's still that's, you know, because I don't think you know, like Marilyn Monroe, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, any of those people were 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 sitting there thinking of, you know, computerized future where where, where they'd be using their likenesses in movies and. Uh, even colorization, you know, for that matter. So sure. I don't understand how, you know, so many people can be, you know, uh, are free to use the likeness of. Well, here's here's those a question. And then and here's one that's that's been dead for 30 years with nobody controlling an estate. But if obviously Paramount or CBS, whoever owns the rights to the TV show, I know CBS owns the, the TV rights and Paramount owns the movie rights. Yeah. So CBS owns the rights because obviously they're putting out DVDs. They're putting mm-hmm. out they they're licensing 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 licensing. <laughs> Thank you to Netflix, Hulu, uh, other streaming services. So wouldn't that fall to covering anything that's in those shows? And since Byrne is taking tele basically telesnaps from the actual shows, and he's getting permission from either CBS or Paramount, to do these right. books, wouldn't yeah. that rights fall, just kind of flow through with that? And he would have that. That's, that's, I want a lawyer but, to, but to tell again, me how come Par- didn't work. Paramount or CBS or whoever had those rights did not sign for likeness rights on him 
whereas they did get those likeness rights from all of the original cast before they passed away. So, so, that not, they, so he had to get, so he's had to get, I would think that, that in a standard contract, they would say, if you sign a contract, you're going to be in a TV show that, that, well, they tell you up front, what, anything that you do, it's kind of like working in comics. Any character you create within, you know, if you, if you work for Marvel and you created a character, essentially Marvel would own that character. I'll, I'll go you one further. If you take a picture and post it on Facebook, that picture is now the property of Facebook and they can use it however they deem. Oh, yeah. It's, it's the same with... It's, it's part of the, of, the, of the user agreement. But then again, with Facebook, you are the product. You're not the customer. And right. I think a lot of people don't don't get that when they, when they think well, about it. Well, a lot of these apps, I've seen a lot of people have these old, old like, uh, emoji apps mm-hmm. that you can, you know, they customize them and that kind of thing. Well, a lot of these, part of the agreement is that they have access to your your uh, keyboard and yeah. they have rights to anything. So basically they can see anything you type. Right. It's like, no, I don't think so. Well, yeah, like the the apps that, that are quizzes or apps that want to sit there and tell you what Greek god you are or what Star, Star Wars character you are. When you give permission to that app, you're giving it your user, your, your friends list yeah, and yeah, email just- addresses Oh yeah, and yeah, and all all that do it. That's data mining. It's just it's just opening up opening yourself up to data mining, but you're agreeing to it, and 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 you're doing legal because I, I I get hit with, you know, fifty posts a day on, on that kind of stuff, but uh, anyway, I guess you know the uh, bringing it back to the likeness on Roger Carmel, because he died before we really entered the digital age. No one ever thought that there'd be a need to ask him for his likeness rights, and you know he he died of a you know of a heart I'll say condition rather than situation or heart attack. Um, you know it's, it's it's actually sad because he uh, called a taxi cab to take him to the hospital when he had chest pains, and the driver refused to go up to the door to knock on it, and he just the, rang of the, the hospital of the hospital. No, no, this is a taxi driver. Oh. He didn't call for an ambulance. He didn't call 911. He called for a taxi driver to come take him to the hospital because he was having chest pains. So the next morning, someone goes to check on him, and oh, he's been dead all night. Hmm. Sad. Yeah, it I is I think sad. he died relatively young. He was, what, maybe in his 50s? Yeah, he was in his early 50s. Yeah. 53. Now, how old are we? <laughs> <clears throat> We're younger than that. Doing those setups, aren't you? <laughs> Whew. Okay, eating so. Lots, eating lots of fiber. Shall we get into the book proper? Uh, we shall. Tell you what, I will, since I wrote it down, I'll give a little information on it, then I'll let you get into your synopsis. Uh, okay. This, uh, well, this, as we said, this is X, Uncanny X-Men number 121. It's got a cover date of May 1979. It was on sale February 1979. Uh, and I'll I'll let you give some more information about, on that. But what came out at the same time, same month, he did Avengers 183 with Klaus Janssen doing his inks. Uh, they reprinted Doomsday uh, number six, which was from 1976 when he was working for Charlton. Wasn't, didn't they just do that as a late, later number, like nine or? Right. It, yeah. uh, I think he did what issue one through six and then he just did like seven through 12 and it's yeah. a reprint, but they just kept the numbers going. And he did... Marvel premiere number 48, which is the other Ant-Man story. All right, cool. Uh, all right, I will turn it over to you, and you can give us a little more information about X-Men yeah, the, 121. The, tit- 
yeah, the title of the story was Shootout at the Stampede. It had uh, 17 pages of comics while it was a 32-page count book. Had a cover price of 40 cents. The editor was Roger Stern. The writer was Chris S. Claremont. Plotter and penciler, John Elburn. Anchor, Terry Austin. Letters, Diana Albers. And I'll mention this right now. You know, as I read the two books back to back, and the previous book being done by uh, lettered by Tom Orzechowski, I noticed no difference whatsoever in the, in the lettering from one book to the other. It was just completely transparent. Had no idea. But then again, uh, the the Tom Orzechowski, who is probably one of the most prolific lettering pros out there, simply because Chris Claremont cannot put the typewriter down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, he actually had a style that I could recognize at points because of the way he would trail down or trail up, um, you know, some of his letters and such. Uh, and that, of course, was in the in that mid-80s realm when uh, Art Adams would get on the book and they would do the annuals and such. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I, again, in the earlier stuff, like, like here, you know, he's he's just workman. He goes in there and does the job. And apparently Diana Albers did the same thing because you cannot tell the difference between the two. At least it's not enough that you notice it when you're sitting or reading it. I honestly, I never notice lettering. I have never, even well, as a graphic designer, I, I still have, that's one of my weaknesses is type. So see like Tom Orzachowski is one that, that uh, I, I could recognize later, you know, looking at a page, I could sit there and say, okay, that's Tom Orzachowski lettering. The only other letterer that I feel I can sit there and look at and say, okay, th- that's him is Bob Lappin. The uh, the other letterer that I recognize pretty much off the bat is Bob Lappin, who you'll probably recognize his work in the the Keith Giffen, J.M. DeMatteis, uh, uh Justice League, the Bwahaha Justice League. Because mm-hmm. uh, he had a very, very light uh, lettering style uh, as compared to others, and it was very recognizable. So uh, and, and he was very, very good with the expressionism within each of the, the, the panels that he worked with in the, in the balloons. Uh, so almost every character had their own style uh, as you read it. And it, it. Again, you know, he had he had a lot of characters to work with. And so I think uh, as, as a letter, he actually distinguished himself in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah. again, Tom Orzachowski is one of those guys that did the same thing, you know, a similar thing, you know, himself. Yeah. Hey, are you you're looking at a scanned. Uh, of an actual book, correct? That's correct, yes. Okay, I'm looking at a digital, so it's been color corrected and cleaned up. My yes. cover price is 35 cents, not 40. Is yours say 40? Uh, mine says 40. That's odd. Mine says 35 cents. Now, does it have the Cockrum... Uh, Austin cover? The the floating faces. Yes, it does. In the, in the upper, upper corner, it's a Cockrum. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, the... Um, the uh, Let me get through this part here. The colorist was Glennis Wine, uh, formerly Oliver... Or wing, excuse me. And uh, this this book's been reprinted in Classic X Men twenty seven, which should also have a nice bonus story at the end. Uh, Essential X Men Volume two trade paperback and the Uncanny X Men Omnibus hardcover in two thousand six, and there was a variant on that too. Cover, of course, was done by Dave Cockrum with inks by Terry Austin, and it uh, shows uh, Alpha Flight. And the X-Men in a snowstorm having a nice battle. Cyclops blasting Vindicator right in the gut with his optic blast. 
Colossus apparently throwing a snowball because it doesn't look like, you know, anything is... Oh, no, he's throwing Sasquatch. He's doing like a judo throw. Yeah, he's doing a judo throw on Sasquatch. But it it also looks like he's throwing a snowball. (laughs) It does. (laughs) And then Storm shooting lightning at Snowbird. Snowbird. And so you don't see the other characters, uh, you know, in in here on the the front cover. But uh, still, it's a pretty full full front cover. Uh, and it's, it's interesting also that Snowbird's wing wings actually cover the X-Men logo and Storm's uh, costume as well. Yeah. Well, they, this that, is, was, that was something they would do that a lot with playing with the kind of breaking the fourth wall, if you'd say, or with the position of something that would uh, break into the logo or break the logo or that. Um, yeah, that, that actually started you know on Neil Adams' run. And uh, they actually, uh, and then when Byrne came in, he tried to do, he did a little homage to Neil Adams on the, on one of the, the Phoenix issues. I think it, it was either the, the fate of the Phoenix. Not fate where, of Phoenix. where she's reaching up and crushing the logo. Yeah. Cause yeah. She, she did it and, and they actually had the X-Men tied to the letter or, 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 you know, on each of the letters and they, they made him redo it because it, they, they felt that it, it obscured the words X-Men. But he's like, if you don't recognize the characters on the cover, what's the name going to mean to you? Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Okay, so uh, cool cover. Uh, I, I like that even for Cockrum. Now, I'll, I'll be honest. Cockrum was never my favorite X-Men artist. Um, I read all the runs that he was on in, you know, in the early days. And my favorite Cockrum story by far – was Kitty's Fairy Tale. Mm-hmm. And I don't re- recall the title of that one. Did you ever read that one? I'm sure I have. I can't, without looking at it in front of me, I can't. It's not. Uh, basically, Kitty Pride was telling Eliana, who was then a child, a fairy tale using the X Men as the characters in it. And the, uh, the Blackbird was an actual dragon that obeyed her. She was a, a pirate, much like, uh, uh, what's her name? Corsair. Yeah. Uh, no, she was she was a, a pirate, and it's funny because I almost get the feeling that Cutthroat Island, uh, when they made that movie, that they were reading this comic. Oh, she was like uh, Gina, Gina Davis. Davis. Gina Davis, yeah, and 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 Colossus was her lover and compatriot, and Wolverine was this vicious fiend, and uh, the uh, the Phoenix was actually a genie that they had to fight and somehow overcome. And it was really a very touching story, of course. And as the story's going on, Cyclops and the others are all outside the door listening to her tell Ilyana the story. Cool. And uh, the, the funniest thing they did, of course, was made Nightcrawler like a Smurf, but they called him a Banff. And there were hundreds of them. Which later shows up in the Cockerman four-issue uh, Nightcrawler miniseries. Yeah, as a as a stuffed doll, a Banff doll. Well, no, he up, he runs show up in the X Men as a Banff doll. That's right. Right, but he runs he runs into a dimension where there are like smaller versions of himself. They're called Banffs. They look kind oh, okay. Of, they look kind yeah. of pimp like. <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember that that four issue miniseries, the swashbuckling. Yeah. yeah, that was cool. Okay, so uh, that being said, I guess let's get into our synopsis. Okay. Following the capture of Wolverine and Nightcrawler by Alpha Flight, Cyclops and Storm, excuse me, Cyclops, Storm, and Colossus blast their way into the Calgary Stampede. Shaman seals the way after they enter to protect any innocents. Storm spots where Alpha Flight has put Nightcrawler and Wolverine out in the center of some field. Cyclops sees it as an obvious trap but decides to take it on head on anyway, 
as he doesn't want to split the team up any further. The X-Men are confronted by Alpha Flight. At the, at the same time, Banshee and the other, others from the X-Men's flight from Japan try to enter the Stampede Grounds only to find the impenetrable field created by Shaman. Inside the Stampede, Cyclops tries to talk to Vindicator, but Colossus interprets movements by Northstar as an attack and a Donnybrook ensues. Wolverine and Nightcrawler free themselves from their bonds and join the fray. The battle rages as, storm, as the storm outside rages as well. Both sides are evenly matched, but the blizzard, which had been raging and growing since the last issue, takes a turn for the worst. Storm has to break off from the fight after defeating Snowbird to calm the weather. It takes a massive toll on her, but she's able to calm it down in a matter of hours. Once she sets down, though, Northstar attacks her as he sees her as the biggest threat. Cyclops is about to start the fight all over again when Wolverine announces that he will surrender to Alpha Flight without a fight to end the battle, provided the X-Men are allowed to go free. Vindicator agrees and the X-Men leave after they see Wolverine put into the back of a truck designed especially to hold him. The X-Men fly off in Jaren Hogarth's jet again, headed back to New York, only to discover Wolverine on board the plane as well, having easily escaped the truck. The X-Men fly back home, safe and sound, for now. The end. Now, synopsis. thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, notably in the story, uh, it looks like, if, if I remember right, this is the first cameo of John Byrne himself. Uh, apparently he and a woman named Doris uh, were in a restaurant there at the Stampede when uh, the, 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 the fight uh, came in there. And so that's the first time you see John Byrne drawing himself within a book, as far as I know. Uh, yeah, it's possible he could have shown up because uh, I, I know he and Chris Claremont both showed up somewhere in a in a story, and I don't remember if it was Marvel Team Up or or this, but I'm pretty sure it was X Men. That's that's to my knowledge, that's his first. This could possibly be his first appearance, and I think the first time he draws himself into a book is the X Men. Yeah. Now I did find also something really really interesting, and that was. Uh, an earlier Alpha Flight appearance at Marvel. In uh, Marvel Spotlight, issue number 32, we get a call out on a radio, Alpha Flight, team reporting. And it is actually not the Alpha Flight we know, but a member of HYDRA letting the uh, base know that they successfully gained access to the S.H.I.E.L.D. complex. Hail HYDRA. So HYDRA has infiltrated Alpha Flight. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. That's okay. That's all the notes that I've got on this one. As, as far as any of that goes, you got anything you want to bring up before we get into it? Not really. I mean, this, this is, this issue is a lot of punchy, punchy run, run it. And well, the yeah. first two pages are kind of a recap of what happened previously. Looking at the very first page, there's several things that really jump out at me. The first thing I'll say though, is Zark. Zark. Yeah. From Cyclops's beam. I've always loved, Zark, because it, it it just that that to me is the word that that expresses Cyclops optic blast. I've always liked. Uh, I think it's like Shrek, or it's I can't I can't per, uh, perfectly duplicate what it says, but that's a a sound they use sometimes when he's blasting. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's better than Katham, which is what uh, yeah, what, Colossus uh, is. Now these are wood doors, right? They look like wood. So why is Colossus having to work so hard to smash down a wood door? I don't, and I don't know why they're smashing. 
Honestly, yeah, I mean, he know. could he could easily push these over. He could push them in. Why yeah. do they have to <laughs> smash them in and announce their presence? Yeah, that was it was really an unnecessary uh, exhibition there. But they, again, they're going into an exhibition, so they're going into the Calgary Stampede, which is a, apparently a famous landmark there. Yeah. Hey, let me point out since you're on that page. Look at the bottom, and this has to do with your uh, your letterer. Yeah. Why is Terry Austin so heavier? Than anybody else's name. That's 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 interesting, and I don't know why. Uh, maybe he embellished on it a little bit. I don't. I mean, Claremont uh-huh. and Burn are a little heavier stroke, but Austin is almost like he had bold. Yeah. Well, I, I also like uh, the fact that on on these X Men books, they do it. You know, author, co plotter, penciler. Uh, the way they, they they separate the the credits up, so you know that Burns, you know, taking part in the storytelling process. Right. He's not just. You know, he's not just getting a story from Chris Claremont and then drawing what you know what he says. It's they get together, they discuss it, he draws it out, then Claremont, Claremont comes behind him and does and the dialogue. It. Yeah. Um, the coloring on this page, though, especially around Cyclops's trunks, I don't know if it if it's bleeding over on yours like it is here. It actually bleeds outside the frame. On no, the they 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 must have fixed it on this digital version. It's not. I don't see that problem. Yeah, okay. And I'm guessing that Storm is going to fly right into that flagpole since her cape is going behind it. Oh, I think she'll hit that thing in her lap. But why, why, look at the flag. Why is that flag so tattered? I don't know. I, I, and, and I don't know what that flag is supposed to be. I mean, it's... I mean, this whole thing looks like it's built like a fort. It looks like a... Yeah. You yeah. know, 1880s, 1870s fort or something. Yeah, but that that flag, I don't I don't know what it recognizes. I'm not familiar with an orange and black uh, uh, flag out of Canada like that. <laughs> I mean, it's just you know we know the maple leaf. Yeah. So okay. Anyway, moving on. Uh, but no, this this is actually a really really uh, cool page. And going on to the to the next one, I, I mean that is a really really busy page, starting off with them discussing and then recapping the the previous issue. Yeah, and kind of explaining why they're going into the front door and why Storm didn't fly them over the top because they would be uh, sitting ducks, as, as uh, Cyclops says. Yeah, and then Shaman hiding off in the shadows. And sprinkling going, his little... Yeah. Magic dust. <laughs> magic dust, which is essentially is what it is. It's fairy yes. dust or something to put up like an invisible force field. Of course, it's not going to keep anybody from flying over it. But it's going to keep. I guess any. I guess he's worried about innocents or civilians getting in there and getting hurt, yeah. which they certainly didn't seem to be in the last issue. They certainly weren't too concerned about civilian casualties. Yeah, now I guess the stampede is not too different from an amusement park because if you look on the bottom of page three, you can see the gondolas almost look like ski lifts. Yeah, that you know take people from one side to the other. Uh, you know, obviously this is one of those things where you know Burns got. Uh, some local street cred. He's drawing landmarks that he is familiar with. He's probably been here before. Well, yeah. I mean, he lived in the area, so it stands to reason that he would do that. And the detail on the uh, structures around uh, seem to show that too. That he's very familiar with the architecture. Yeah. Except it looks like where they're going in is it's icy. I don't know if that's on purpose. It looks like it's covered in ice, almost like it's an ice rink. Yeah. And, and that could be the case. Well, it's been well, yeah, snowing, they, so maybe it's supposed yeah. to look wet, kind of yeah. wet and snowy. Wet and snowy, and then they get inside, and they find 
the boys down in the center of the stadium. And that, of course, is where they get uh, confronted by Alpha Flight. But before they do, the bottom of page six, um, how's Colossus's head doing that? Because it's almost like he's sticking his neck out real far and then he's turning his head and tilting it. I don't think the human neck can actually do that. But then again, he's all metal. so He's all metal, so maybe he can do that when he's in his metal form. (laughs) But he's probably creaking all over the place. Well, I like how Wolverine's kind of just peeking out of the corner. Yeah. That, you know, the way Wolverine's head is peeking out, it's almost like um, Keith Giffen's Legion of Superheroes uh, work around that time when when he was doing the pencils. And he was doing a very uh, kind of a his own version of Neil Adams uh before he went into his own odd style and but he would always have like somebody's head popping in from corners and sides of panels uh, but usually with an odd expression yeah but on the next page of course we get to see alpha flight in all their glory sasquatch who is just freaking huge and hairy snowbird vindicator aurora and north star and shaman now north star Looks more elfish, elfin, here than uh, than you know in later stuff. Think so? I thought he's yeah. always kind of drawn. I th- felt he always drawed kind of as a Vulcan. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. That it's almost well, Stan like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Stan here. Stan. <laughs> and, uh, and I and Sasquatch looks a little bulky. I think when he when he, you finally see him when he starts drawing him in. Alpha Flight, their own series. He's a little leaner. He's yeah. still massive, but here he just looks kind of squatty. Yeah, and North Star gets more of a of a runner's physique in later iterations. He's real pretty bulky here. Yeah, well, it's 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 kind of the uh, the the Reed Richards syndrome because yeah, when he when he started drawing Reed Richards, he made him a little more slender. Like like he said, a runner's or a swimmer's body. Yep. So it's our this yeah this is our kind of our alpha flight flat the splash page where we're, uh, again as you said pointed out in the in our last show how the X Men know who these people are yeah I don't know yeah how how they know that that you know James McDonald Hudson is now Vindicator yeah as opposed to anything else and it, yeah going on to the to the next page you see that Banshee and Colleen and Misty. Are, are catching up this time they're in a taxi cab and they're at the doors to the stampede and you can actually see the broken doors at their feet at Banshee's yeah. feet um, and of course they can't get in because of the of the force field and Banshee can't fly over because he's lost his his scream yeah. lost his scream in the fight with Moses Magnum now at this point does Misty Knight have her bionic arm yeah okay so she could possibly smash her way in if she I don't think so. I, I think that 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 thing would block her too. No, I was th- I was wondering if it just extends to that opening, or if she could smash through on the walls. Mm, good question. Yeah, probably not. She'd probably get stopped wherever. Now, what actually is Northstar doing that Colossus sees as an attack, and how is he possibly moving behind Cyclops? I I didn't he's, quite he's, understand. He's not. He's moving behind Vindicator. Now, Northstar does look a little like he's. Like he's thinking about doing something. I think this is just uh, from the previous issues where Colossus was feeling like he was a weak link in the team and he wasn't pulling his own weight Yeah. Uh, when the, in the Moses Magnum storyline. And I think this is him overcompensating for that. 
Yeah, he's he's uh, definitely inexperienced, and uh, that that's putting him in, in in a position to to make more mistakes because he doesn't want to make mistakes. Yeah, and something you think about that this team has been together since issue one twenty one, so they've been together for is that what like twenty five issues. So we're yeah. so used to them being such a cohesive team, so like a well old machine that they're actually still learning to work together. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, they were older before they got together than the original team was. True. They, they, and so they, it was harder for them to gel as a team. They were all so, more individual personalities instead of just five teams that came, that came together. So so Colossus does something that I don't know that I've ever seen him do you know, before or since. Do the Hulk stomp? Do, does a Hulk stomp and causes a ground quake that throws everybody off in a big way. And that just you know starts the fight. And then you realize, of course, that... Wolverine and Night and and uh, Wolverine and Nightcrawler were playing possum. Possum, yeah. That and, and and I I didn't think that you know Vindicator would have thought that Wolverine would would you know be an easy take like that. That uh, if Wolverine woke up, he'd be able to get himself out of whatever bonds they put there. Well, and like we said in the last uh, episode, that Vindicator himself is inexperienced as a leader and he's he's reluctant to be the leader and he doesn't have a lot of confidence in himself so Mm -hmm. maybe he just kind of wants this over with and thought well this would be you know this would be an easy uh, an easy takedown yeah and so we get to see wolverine doing his version of superman which is ripping ripping the shirt (laughs) off of him instead of you know pulling it pulling it open at the chest and uh storm looking as good as storm usually does in her own it's almost like a Beyonce look. I'd, I'd, I'd have to say, uh, it's it's always to me it struck <laughs> me of of kind of black exploitation uh, type outfit. Yeah, well, you know the professor. He sure does like the young girls. But Storm wasn't necessarily as young as everybody else was. In fact, they uh, when they originally were writing it, they were considering her to be an older older character than than the others by maybe even as far as 10 years not not wolverine obviously but no the well i always thought i always struck me as colossus as being about 18 19 yeah maybe nightcrawler 20 21 22 maybe 25 and uh-huh. yeah uh, storm maybe late tw- late 20s early 30s maybe yeah because she definitely got more of a maternal uh, thing to her and, and you know even when when kitty Pryde is with the x-men and they're going up against the hellfire club she definitely got a little bit more maternal definitely more mature uh real real quick yeah okay so uh next we see on page 14 shaman going into his bag of tricks and pulling out the little i, I call them tiki monsters it's like a totem pole they they remind me of um the the little uh, tribal guys from what was that that uh, anthology movie oh uh trilogy of terror trilogy of terror yeah <laughs> that's what for whatever reason i guess it's the one that's got the the widow's peak and the uh, yeah he looks like the the uh zindi he's a zindi warrior or a i can't <laughs> i can't i've got i can't think of what it what it is but yeah the little guy was just all he's all teeth mother you should see what i'm getting for his birthday it's a, a genuine Zuni fetish doll. I found it in a curio shop on 3rd Avenue. It's a Zuni hunting fetish. <laughs> it's really interesting. There's supposed to be some Zuni hunter's spirit inside of it. <laughs> and um, there's a golden chain wrapped around it to keep the spirit from making the doll come to life. Yeah, yeah. Whew. 
And then we see uh, Cyclops, of course, blasting at it. And then Quicks, uh, not Quicksilver, excuse me, <laughs> Northstar uh, <laughs> knocking Cyclops down with uh, one quick punch. And Aurora making her second use of superpower uh, in the whole fray. Because you, you remember earlier, she and, and um, Northstar did the, the one light, twins power light. activate flash yeah. uh, to Nightcrawler. And, and she, of course, just gets away from Nightcrawler really, really quick. Uh, but he, of course, is able to teleport. And I think he was trying to keep up at that point. Yeah, I like, uh, you don't see it here, but kind of later when you see Nightcrawler and her, you see that. I was like the when they when they used to write Nightcrawler as being a little kind of mischievous, impish, kind of playful. And yes. He's kind of playing with her. Yes, and, and it, an interesting point will come up in a little bit here. Now, the scene on page 15 in the top middle where uh, Snowbird, uh, and- Snowbird is changing... I find that really disturbing because she looks furry or not quite feathery, but for, I guess feathery and it's furry feathers. Yeah, I think she's, she's turning into the owl and it just, it's creepy. You know, it's like looking at the Thundercats or, <laughs> or, or, or something, you know, it's not right. <laughs> well, my question is how big is an Arctic owl? Because like, I don't think she can change. She can't necessarily. She can just become the actual size of whatever the Arctic animal is. I don't think she can become a giant polar bear or a giant wolf. I think she becomes the actual size. So how big is an Arctic owl? You watched Harry Potter movies, right? Yeah. Hedwig is an Arctic owl, isn't he? Is he? I believe so. And he's pretty good size too. Yeah, but I don't think that would that would frighten someone with Storm's powers. Yeah. Well, I mean, she did say a giant Arctic owl. I guess I I don't know how big they could actually get. But again, you know, you put Storm in a locked car and she gets scared. So, (laughs) yeah, but that's because she's claustrophobic. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I would think the same thing would happen to this owl that happened to Hedwig in Harry Potter. One blast (laughs) and you see little feathers floating down. That was sad. People cried in the theater. I'm not saying me. But, uh, oh, it's okay. It's okay to admit you cried. It's okay. It was sad. So Wolverine's taking out the Tiki dolls. And Sasquatch apparently is getting the better of Colossus. But Sha- and Shaman comes in, of course, to uh, rise up the storm and swing Wolverine around. Cyclops seems to be getting his bearings. Yeah, he's kind of getting up. He's still shaking. And on our next page, apparently, a young John Byrne had a lot of hair. I've always thought Burns always drawn himself with uh, more hair. Um, you know, when he was doing Starbrand, uh, he he did show himself exactly as he looked with the short, short burr haircut. Um, and I I don't know what he did after that. If he did any other cameos after after Starbrand, um, but uh, you know he did he did know. actually do the do the short hair then. Um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know how he's looking these days in all that. I think he's probably a little bit thinner up top, but again, yeah. I don't think he's doing any, any cameos of himself anymore. Unless if he does, mis- he does an extreme caricature. Right. Like the one I posted that one for OMAC that he did of himself with the OMAC yeah, Mohawk. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this is, looks like how he drew himself when he would put himself in the Fantastic Four books. Yeah. And he, you can tell he took special care. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it was a photo reference picture of the of the girl Darice. She looks like that's actual an actual person. Yeah, 
And so I, I think, you know, he got a picture of her and, 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 and made good care on that, took good care on that. Uh, and so Colossus fighting Sasquatch, it wasn't particularly, you know, that, that fight between the two of them, it didn't seem that exciting because they're not really showing. Here you have two huge, incredibly strong fighters, and both of which neither should, you know, exist in the normal world. And yet we get two shots of, you know, Tham, Pow, and, you know, let's get back to Wolverine now. Well, I think, honestly, Colossus would have a hard time going up against Sasquatch anyway because he's got to have double his reach. I mean, Sasquatch looks like he's got about an eight-foot, nine-foot reach. Yeah. And I think he's pretty quick. So unless, uh, as we see later on when he uses some... uh, you know, you know, as Cyclops tells him, you know, think with your, you know, fight with your head, not just your muscles, and think about what right. you're doing. But I, and I don't know if this is because it's supposed to be dark and there's a storm, but Cyclops, I don't like when they, when they, when they, they, they're, they're not showing his reflectiveness of his, of his armor. When he's, you know, this is all pale blue. At least on my coloring, it's all pale blue. Yeah, and they don't see many highlights. And that may be just because it's supposed to be dark and there's not, there's nothing to reflect off of it, but. I kind of wish they had done a little more with some some highlights on him. Yeah, you know, in in the Deadpool movie, they kind of made him almost gunmetal. Yeah, he well, he yeah. and yeah, and that he looked, and he also he looked scratched up, and you know, yeah. of course, the way they like, implied there, he was he was uh, he was metal all the time. He never reverted back to his human form. Right, and and that happened to him for a while, uh, where he had gotten injured and he could not revert revert back. back. From, yeah. Anyway, um, so Wolverine, of course, sees what's going on. He sees that Shaman is uh, definitely a, a threat and that he probably thought that Wolverine was finished. And he says that's his mistake. And as he goes up to attack him, you know, Vindicator, of course, comes in and uh, tries to zap him out with a big thwakow. Thwakow, yeah. That don't that didn't sound like much of a... And uh, we next see Cyclops and Northstar, uh, a little, little going on there. And then Colossus with a big whiff. Just swing and a miss <laughs> at a guy that's got to be eight feet away from him. Well, it looks like it looks like Sasquatch is holding his head, doesn't it? Oh, oh my gosh! Yes, <laughs> you're right. He's holding his head just like you would do with a little kid. Yeah, swing it at you. But then, then uh, thanks to uh, as you said, Cyclops telling Colossus to use his head, he gets him in, by his foot and does a judo throw, which is really good. Yeah. Now these three down here. Um, Jim, Corey, and Paul, they're nobody as far as I know. They're not. Well, it's funny because the, he's not called Jim, but the one that says Jim looks a little like Jim Shooter, who was editor in chief at the time. The other two, I, I, I yeah, as you said, I, I couldn't find them any correlation between these being actual people, but unless they're just using names, Paul, Corey, and Jim. Yeah. Because uh, when I was looking it up on uh, Mike's Amazing World, it mentioned the cameos, but it, it only said them by you know first names. It didn't didn't give right. any 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 you know identity to them beyond that. Same thing with Doris. It didn't give a last name or anything. Just an unnamed yeah. you know. Uh, it could uh, be I just said before. It could be people just burn nose. Or yeah. Just throwing a friend in there, throwing them a bone. Yeah. What's wrong with and that? Then we see uh, Aurora. Being useless, and Nightcrawler probably planting the seeds of what became the most famous kiss in Marvel movies. Never thought of that. 
Yeah. I, again, I you know I, I don't recall ever seeing that kind of kiss in the Spider-Man comic books myself. I don't know if that was a, just a Sam Raimi thing where he came up with it. But, you know, again, you know, here you see a kind of variation on it. And this is a good, you know, 20 years before, 20, 22 years before that actually came out. Yeah. As a Spider-Man thing, you think I would know, but I can't recall if, I'm sure that must have happened at some time. Yeah. Between uh, Peter and Mary Jane. And it, like his, you know, his tally hole that just kind of goes you know, along with his oh, whole kind of swashbuckling, yeah, kind of free spirit, yeah, that he was. So we see Vindicator and Wolverine in a fracas, uh, neither really, you know, getting a good shot on each other, and the storm is just taken off. And so, uh, you know, Vindicator's asking Shaman what's going on. Shaman's not really sure because uh, the storm's getting really, really bad. Storm, of course, is fighting with a uh, with a snowbird. And she bags her up in her cape. Now, if she bags her up in her cape, how is she able to stay aloft? I mean, it, do, do the winds just blow her? They just blow her because because when she later, when yeah. she changes her costume later and she has the mohawk, she doesn't have the cape. She still flies. So I think it's Straight. always been the winds will blow her. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the things I found a little interesting here was, you know, earlier I made that comment, that Beyonce comment. Yeah, you, uh, in, in, on page 11, you see tr- Storm take off into the sky as the fight's going on. And then once again here, uh, when Storm is flying off into the sky, it's almost a similar pose. One hand yeah, is yeah. down where it was up or, you know, up earlier. But uh, it's a very, very similar similar pose. But I love the cloud work there in the back. And, and story, if they had just a poster of storm without the words on this. I mean, that would be just a, a wonderful poster to have oh, the, all the storm effects when not only when storm and uh, snowbird are fighting, but yeah, the, the snow, the behind all of them are just wonderful. They're, and that's just gotta be Terry Austin's inks. They just look, it's got so much energy and it looks so kinetic and, and you can just see the kind of movement. To right. It. I want to kind yeah. of jump back before we get too far yeah. ahead because Okay. To go back to the next page where right below where uh, Nightcrawler is giving Aurora her kiss, and you just have a little dialogue between Wolverine and Vindicator, but we get a little more of Wolverine's backstory because he find out that that Vindicator and his wife Heather took Wolverine in mm-hmm. when he was found as a feral guy. Wild, you know, child. he was a wild, yeah. wild. You know, he was basically a wild animal up in uh, Canada, and they brought him in, and that's how he got into Department H, and of course. Wolverine showed a little resentment that he was never given uh, a chance. You know, he was never given a choice, I should say. Right. He was kind of forced into it. That's, again, that's why uh, he doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to go back. True, true. Now, and so this is a part I have a problem with, uh, this next part. So Storm goes up and she does her bit to figure out what's going on with the storm and she works hard to, to beat it. And it says here, she finishes a little before dawn and bringing the storm down. Now we could tell it was definitely nighttime as they were fighting and everything. So what he's saying is that it must've taken her several hours. That's the impression you get. Yeah. What were they all doing on the ground? I don't know. During that I don't know it's like they're just sitting there doing nothing <laughs> because as soon as storm lands, North star goes, she must be the most powerful one. So boom, Take he goes out. and knocks her out, and the fight starts all back up again. You know, and it, you know, you can tell by their positioning that you know they didn't move or change from when she left 
to go fight the storm. So we we are to assume they have been fighting for last couple hours, or they've been watching her, and Northstar just waited for his first chance to take her out. Well, I think that this is one of those probably was a disagreement between Byrne and Claremont, and that because they don't show anywhere on this page, they show that it's night up at the top. But they don't show that it's dawn or starting to become dawn. I think that as far as Burma is concerned, that only took a few moments. It could be. Because otherwise the positioning of those people wouldn't change. And Claremont putting that, she finishes a little before dawn, makes it seem like hours, makes it seem like a long time has passed when in reality it probably hadn't and nobody had really moved from their spot. I think he wanted to show how how much she had – how strenuous it was for her, how she had it, how she has exerted herself so much, right? To say that she did it for instead of you know, she was up there for five or 10, 15 minutes. Then you know, if she was up there for hours, and maybe in his mind, for her to control a storm that has basically covered most of Canada and almost they, uh, yeah. That, yeah, that whole hemisphere, that whole western hemisphere, yeah, from the Rockies to Atlantic coast, that it would take her longer to be able to manipulate something that big, right? So it could be just that he put that in without just you know, discussing it with Bernie. It may, you know, it may be one of those things that now they weren't worried about it. You know, nobody's going to, you know, maybe most people will pick up on it. But yeah, the now, shot, the shot of um, Cyclops when he's yelling Aurora, Aurora. Yeah. Why, why is he yelling Aurora? Why isn't he yelling Storm? That's why true. Why give somebody's name out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't look like a burned face, does it? Uh, you know, you're right. It it almost it's like a cross between Sal Basima and Steve Rude. Yeah, but it's even too detailed for. I think it. Well, I don't see Sal Basima at all because it's too kind of defi- well defined. Well, I just say that because the mouth is wide open. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no little spittle between the two the two T's. That'd be Sal yeah. Basima. Uh, but I do love when he. Of course, I think this was also take off North Star's head uh, when he just gives him a. Uh, Zrap, <laughs> just you know, Cocox right in the face. Yeah, oh, that was great. And once again, uh, Aurora is useless, <laughs> and uh, Cyclops is ready to just take him out. And Wolverine, of course, is the one to uh, stop him. I think this showing Wolverine starting to fit in with the the group a little more. He's not so much a loner that he 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 he's like he says. I don't see any reason why you know you guys should get beat up on my behalf. And yeah. of course. Doing what we know, he knows that he's going to escape. He knows that whatever they put him in, he's going to get out. Yeah. You know, I uh, looking at the bottom of page 26 here, and we see Vindicator talking to Wolverine. I've always had a problem with Vindicator's costume. And that is, you know, because uh, in Alpha Flight issue 12, the one where he actually, you know, um, well, well, you know what happens. Yeah. Um, and in that one, you see him actually in the inner workings of his uniform. And you, you realize that his uniform is more like armor. Yeah, it, it, well, it always like looked a, like it was just just like a, a suit of circuitry, what it looks like. Yeah, it, it, to me, it, looking at it, you know, if we saw it in real life, he'd look a lot like the Flash did on that old uh, late 80s or early 90s TV series with John Wesley Shipp. I don't know if you if you ever yeah, watched that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's your Flash, that, yeah. Yeah, he had that costume that kind of – was a, a, a thickened armor. It's not armor, but it was thickened on his body. So it made him look like, you know, a bigger person than he actually right. was. And I, I think that's the way that, that, that this costume is supposed to be. 
But whenever you did see James McDonald Hudson out of costume, he didn't look like he was any smaller. Well, I think it was supposed to be skin tight. And also, I think I don't think this enhances his strength. I don't think it's like Iron Man's armor. It gives him the power of flight and he he has this uh, force field and he can project energy. Yeah. But I don't think it makes him any stronger than the average average guy. Okay, no, no, that that makes sense. But still, where is the circuitry? It's I mean, super if it's thin. Skin tight, yeah. It's super. It had to be it's super, super thin. thin. But again, you know, the modular pieces that he took out in issue twelve was like an inch thick. Well, maybe you know, he maybe supply, maybe you know. maybe he makes all the uh, components curved to fit his body. Right. That's where the six pack comes from. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Spoilers. Okay. He blows up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in a horrible way, the woman caused it. <laughs> oh. Oh, I, his you wife. Said- his wife walked in on him. <laughs> And boom. Oh, I'm sorry. So Wolverine gives up <laughs> to Alpha Flight. And uh, they, uh, of course, uh, Vindicator promises the X-Men free, uh, not free, but um, no hassle in uh, leaving Canada. Of course, um, the force field comes down. Looks like Doris left John at his table. Uh, if that's her up the top left corner in that panel on, on page 27. Darice has left, left dinner a little disappointed. Is that disappointed. her? Is that her I don't know if it is front? or isn't, but it could be. That looks uh, like that could be somebody. I don't know who that is. Yeah. It looks like Dorothy Hamill. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the force field comes down, and you know, once again, Banshee is talking up a storm, even though he can't really talk. Wolverine is, of course, getting into the Wolverine-proof van. <laughs> who is uh, Garson? I'm sorry? Well, he he's getting in the van. He says, "You always had a big mouth, Garson. Keep it flap, uh, keep flapping around me, and your wife will uh, be a widow before her time." Like he's talking to the either guard. he read the guy's name tag. Yeah, I don't know. He either read the guy's name tag or he knew him from when he served. Maybe he knows one one or the other. Probably yeah. he knew him when he served. All um, I all I can think about when he's getting into the back of this van is uh, wrongfully accused of a crime they didn't commit. He. <laughs> managed to escape into yeah. the underground and if you can find him now look at all him. these jets <laughs> need Ted Cassidy to need that uh, <laughs> all these planes you know I see all these planes but I don't see the X-Men's plane they're, they're in a DC t- okay there's no the DC it's H right it's got the H because you see it on the plane and on the, on the top of the plane on both wings oh yeah 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 I could barely t- make that out there I mean, all the planes here look green. Yeah. There's one that's got a red logo on it, which I'm assuming is supposed to be... A maple leaf? Yeah, something like that. Okay. See on the inside of the very luxurious plane of Jaron Hogarth. And Cyclops' proportions seem a little off there on the top right panel. His arms, his hands look a little bigger than they should be. Yeah. It's almost like he's got beast-style hands. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, they find out Wolverine's up in the cockpit with uh, Anne, and he's talking to the pretty woman. And that's a fine how do you do for a man that just, you know, met the nice Japanese lady. <laughs> well, he's not – we don't know if he's flirting with her. He's just – and Wolverine hasn't necessarily decided that yeah, he, Mariko he just, is one for him. But He just wanted to make his entrance in style on the jet. Yeah. Yeah. And so the X-Men fly off into the sunset. Next issue, Cry for the Children. And uh, didn't see any letters that were really anything of recognition. You know, it's like a lot of times I'll sit there and look at the letter pages on uh, 
one or the other. And I'll see, you know, someone who is big today, like Mike, uh, Mark Wade or Kurt Busiek or, uh, I, you know, it's like every now and then you'll see someone. Of course, I haven't seen Paul Spataco. Okay. Um, so what did you think about that, about that issue? I liked it for some reason. I didn't like it. I don't, I wouldn't say I didn't like it as much as the first one. I mean, this is mostly a fighting, just mostly fighting between the two teams. And you get a, you know, you get in the other issue, we were just got hints of what the uh, Alpha team members were. And here we get to see him fully revealed. But maybe if this had been, this is kind of based, it's almost mostly nine panel, you know, variations of kind of a nine panel grid. If he had opened it up a little more, made it more of a kind of a widescreen. Yeah. We could have got some greater shots of, especially between like Colossus and Sasquatch. Or some better scenes of uh, Storm when she's fighting Snowbird, but I mean, other than that, that's a that's a, a tiny little nitpick. Other than that, the, the story's good. It wraps up good. I like the way it ends. Uh, we get a little more history on Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Uh, little development in Alpha Flight. Not, I mean, there's only much you can do in two issues. Uh, art is as beautiful as the other issue. Yeah, the art, art's just gorgeous from yeah. page to page. You know, didn't have a problem really with any of that. I, you know, the the one of the things that 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 bugged me, and I guess I'm looking at it through later eyes, is that there, you know, they they didn't really give definitive wins to to much of them. Now, of course, Nightcrawler completely outclassed Aurora, and Storm, you know, of course, beat out uh, Snowbird. No um, you can't say for sure that Sasquatch really got the better of Colossus because in the end, Colossus was still standing up. Well, you see that after the storm hits, it's he uh, Sasquatch is on the ground. <laughs> looks yeah. like it looks like Colossus is fixed and pound him on the head. Yeah, and of course Cyclops, you know, took out Northstar in that incredibly very cool manner. Oh, I yeah. always like I always like something like that. You know, of course, Storm, you know, got taken out by a cheap shot. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, we, you know, we find out later, of course, is that, you know, North Star is, a, is quite the hothead. Oh, yeah. Uh, angry, angry individual. And I won't say why. <laughs> uh, well, I won't say why I think why. But, you know, again, um, he's a minority and a minority and a minority. True. So. so <laughs> well, I've got a question. I thought about this the whole time I was reading both these issues. Yeah. What was. Now, obviously, Vindicator is here on orders from the Prime Minister. Right. Because the Prime Minister's got all this money wrapped up in Wolverine, and he's not going to let him just walk away. What was was his goal to con- to kidnap Wolverine and forcibly take him or keep him in Canada and make him work for Department H again, where they got to try to brainwash him? What- no. I, well, I mean, that, that could have been based on, you know, what we know of the processes and such that they used on Wolverine, the the Weapon X uh, storyline that they had in Marvel Comics Weekly and they, they turned it into trade paperback. Um, you know, they they did do, uh, you know, so they, they did try, you know, some mental rearrangement, so to speak. Um, but I think it wasn't a matter of, you know, we're going to get them to come back and work for us. We're just going to get them. You, well, we don't we don't we don't invest so much in you and you just run away. Well, that's just it. If they want to imprison him, is it punishment for kind of turning his back, for him turning his back on him? Or do they want to somehow 
make him an agent for him again. I don't know how that was going to happen. He's certainly not going to volunteer. I would assume, I would assume that it was either going to be prison or reprogramming. I would think it'd have to be reprogramming because it was that way. They because if he's in prison, sure they've punished him and he's not free, but they don't get any benefit from that. If yeah, they but- if they go in there and try to do some you know work on his brain and get him to uh, forget who he was or whatever whatever method they're going to get him to become a an active member of Department H again. Yeah, I just don't. It didn't seem like they thought that through. It just seemed like all Vindicator thought was, "Well, I'm gonna grab him and I'm gonna keep him here or take him back to, I guess, uh, Ottawa. That's where he was originally. Take him back to the capital, I guess, or wherever they were based out of." Yeah. Maybe they need the. Uh, maybe they they need to research more of the process that gave him his adamantium. So. I mean, I can understand yeah. that there's a lot of money. He's an asset, and they put, you know, but as he says, he says, uh, what does he say? He says, um, he's a free man. Yeah. He says, you never. He's going to stay free or die. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to stay free or die. So basically, that's why he wants to, he doesn't want to go back. You know, he doesn't want to. And then, and then Giant says, actually, number one, you don't get much motivation. He's just like, oh, here's a better offer. Okay, I quit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they send him out. First thing they send him to do is to fight the Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> well, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a trial by fire right there. Right, but your 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 job that you're doing right now, they didn't sit there and you know no. ask you to read the Encyclopedia <laughs> Britannica, did they? No, no, they and give you a day to do it. I mean, because you know, sending sending Wolverine the runt out to get out to defeat the Hulk. Uh, let's see who's tried it before. Uh, everybody, yeah. everybody, and who did it? Nobody, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here's this little guy, no super strength. Um, he's got metal claws that can cut anything, but they really don't cut the Hulk. And oh, he can smell really good, and, and you know he hears really well, and he heals. So he's unbreakable. He's got a real positive attitude. He yeah, thinks that, he, can, he, he thinks he can do scrapper. anything. Yeah, he's a scrapper. He is, yeah. Well, but, Wolverine, you know, they didn't think that one out. Wolverine's never, and I guess at this point, since he doesn't remember his history, that he is Canadian, he never seems to have a love for that country. Like, this is my country. That's why That's why Vindicator and all the rest of them are out, because it's their country, and they want to defend their country. They want to be protectors of their country. Wolverine never seemed to have, have to have a sense of loyalty to Canada. Well, he loved Canada that much. That much is, is, you know, he's demonstrated in other things. I, I remember when, uh, X-Men 132, and that was the first, uh, modern X-Men that I read. Um, you know, they were, they had gone to see Angel at his Aerie, wherever that is in Colorado or someplace. And Nightcrawler is, is, you know, just saying how nice the mountains are. And Wolverine tells him this is nothing compared to the Canadian Rockies. He's very proud of where he came from. You know, that, that much is, is, is sure. That does, but, you know, that put aside, he doesn't necessarily have any love for the government. Well, true. Yeah. But, you know, they, again, you know, what, what Xavier was saying is that, you know, they are citizens of the planet. They're citizens of the world not of one country or another. That's the argument that he used on Colossus. And it works just as well for Wolverine. Yeah. It's the, it's that, 
that old, you know, you've got this ability, this power, you have to use it for the good of everyone, not just your own town, country, city. Right. And like, they, yeah, we're going to stay in, in New York, just a couple miles away from the largest concentration of superpowered heroes in the world, instead of going someplace else where we could probably be more help. Yeah. Hey, Japan likes you. It's true. <laughs> Your hero's there. Hey, they hang out in Australia for a while. And there's a really hot gal there that, that Wolverine likes. Uh, I, I mean, hot in her own way. I don't, you know, if he would sit there and describe it, please don't come to my house, Wolverine, okay? I don't need you here. <laughs> I had a friend in college that was very, very much like Wolverine and very, very quick to anger like Wolverine too. So uh, it's it, it's funny because I always think of him whenever I think of Wolverine. I think it's him in the costume, but I won't say I won't say a name because it is possibly could be listening. It's true. Well, I hope he's listening. <laughs> so do I. So do I. Anyway, well, go ahead. No, I'm just saying. What did you think of the issue? Did you like it more or less yeah, the other I, one or? I, I liked it uh, a lot. I I did, you know, think that, and and I think I understand, you know, a bit more. You know, Byrne was simply trying to create a group of heroes that could go toe to toe with the X Men. He did not flesh them out beyond probably one paragraph for each character. Walter Langowski, professor, former, you know, football player, former jock, but he's really really smart tried to recreate the Hulk accident, become Sasquatch. Shaman, you know, mystic who actually turned his back on his own people, and now he's accepted at full force. Aurora and North Star, you know, two mutants who, when they touch, cause a brilliant burst of light, both can move at super super speed. And she uh, has multiple personalities. Yeah, well, he, he doesn't show that here, though it is. I, I mean, if you read into it, you might be able to figure something out. Yeah, that. you don't know that until later. Yeah. And, you know, North Star's an Olympic, you know, uh, using his, illegally using his uh, <laughs> speed powers to better himself in the world standing and become a, an Olympic uh, professional. An Olympic, of course, is amateur uh, com- competition. But, uh, you know, he's using that to his advantage. Um, of course, they don't reveal uh, a lot for a long time, actually well after Burns gone from the book, that North Star was actually gay. Though he did uh, in Alpha Flight – give a number of the little telltale signs that he let gave, you know. Yeah, he gave hints. He gave hints, but uh, he never uh, really went the full bore. And, you know, for a while there, you know, Marvel kind of balked at it, and they tried to make out, make him out to be like a half-elf or half-fairy or something. Well, from what I understand, he, he wasn't allowed to reveal because of the comics code. He couldn't come. He couldn't have him come out and say, I'm gay. Until yeah. much, much, much later, but he 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 was allowed, or he put in subtle hints that gave you an idea of possibly his uh, his orientation. But right, well, now it's like a requirement that one character in the book must be revealed to have been gay all along. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, but you know, I mean, I you know, I. I never got as big a charge out of Alpha Flight as a lot of people do. And, you know, the, the things that, that I've read on the web is there are a lot of people that really, really love Alpha Flight. And I think that, that John Byrne kind of thinks of Alpha Flight pretty much the same way that George Lucas thinks of Boba Fett. Doesn't like him? Well, it's not that he doesn't like him. He just doesn't understand what the big deal is. 
You know, he just doesn't understand why is everybody so big on this? Okay, here's this guy, but really all you see of him is not a whole lot, and he kind of goes out like a wimp. And yet oh, you know, yeah. every, everybody's just like, hey, hey, you know. And so here you've got Alpha Flight, and, you know, in this book, you know, they're kind of a team, but they made a lot of mistakes uh, in doing all this. Shaman not being able to control the storm, well, which probably caused a number of people to die. Well, I think Alpha Flight is a is even more of a green team than the X-Men are. They haven't been – a lot of them have just uh, recently been moved up from – I guess they were still using Beta Flight then. Yeah. And so they're still – many of them are still using, as, as Sasquatch points out, you know, he doesn't know his own strength. Many of them are still learning their own abilities. And Right. But I like Alpha so, Flight. I, I, that's yeah. actually the, the – Alpha Flight number one is the only – Autographed John Byrne book I've got, and I've got a few, and I've got I actually have that one autographed. Though I I bought it that way. I didn't. I did same thing. I, I bought it. I bought it autographed. I didn't. I never met you know met the man, but I liked Alpha Flight because it dealt, like I said before, it dealt so much with Canada, and you got a sense of they dealt with a lot of Canadian history, and they were kind of isolated up there. They didn't interact too much with uh, the primary uh, you know mm-hmm. Marvel universe in New York or. You know, and the, and the other uh, Marvel heroes. So he, he dealt a lot with stuff that was uh, locally, had, you know, that was Canadian. And I like right. that because you got a, it was a little different. Yeah, but I mean, even when he took the book, even when he when he did the book, he did the book because Marvel kept asking him to do it, and they were getting ready to go ahead and give it to somebody else. And he's like, No, 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 no. Well, I, that, that makes sense. Guys, if somebody's going to do it. He should do it. Yeah. And so he goes ahead and does it. But what's the first thing he does? He breaks the team up. I mean, he did it in X-Men in, was it 143, 140, uh, 142, 143, the, the, at the end of the Wendigo story? What was the, the end of the Wendigo story? So I guess it was, was that before or after um, Days of Future Past? Days of Future Past is 140, 142, I think. Or okay, 141, so it, it, 142. So it would be 139, 140 was the Wendigo story. You know, at the end of that story, Department H broke Alpha Flight up. And so when you actually get to the book, they're not even an official team. And when you go through the the series, how often as a team are they actually together? It's mostly individual stories that they cover through the whole thing. And they don't actually, I guess, get together really until issue 12. And whoops, guess what happens there? (laughs) True. Well, he may be (laughs) trying to... If he felt that the characters weren't sufficiently uh, fleshed out, which is what the best you can do in two issues, he was trying to explore the characters by having doing more individual stories on the character instead of them working as a team. So, but as you said, you know, he did, you know, spoilers, he does kill off Vindicator in, at uh, issue 12 and his wife takes over. Right. And then later on, uh, Sasquatch. <laughs> gets killed and then box gets killed is it marina marina yeah marina the, the, the amphibian yeah which they had some nice tie-ins with namor there because they mm-hmm. date or marry do they marry i, I know they know. date i know they I, date i don't know because i mean i read the namor series up until jay lee came in and started on the artwork but we've yeah. talked about that before yeah. um but you know it's I, I, again you know all I'm, all I'm saying here is that uh 
from what I understand, and unfortunately I understand a little a little too much, and sometimes I'm, I'm knowing a little too much about how the sausage is made here, and that hurts uh, my reading of it all. And and this is this is one of those things that that, that, I'm, that I'm trying to 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 put out there, you know, not just here, but you know, with my son, uh, you know, with my friends, and say let, let's stop learning about how the sausage is made. Let's stop reading everything about every movie that's coming out so we know everything going into the theater. Let's stop hearing about you know the star's best and worst moments outside of work, because. The more that we do that and, and the more that we know how the sausage is made, the less we're likely to, to, to like it anymore. And, and, you know, I use as my great example, Sean Penn. Uh, I cannot stand him. I, I, I've heard him talk on a number of occasions and he's not what I would call an intelligent person, though he really believes that he is, that he knows better than so many other people. And as a result, when I see a movie that he's in and I know that he's there, he just ruins it for me. He ruined the end of Secret Life of Walter Mitty for me because he showed up in the movie and I go, oh, it's Sean Penn, you know, yeah. instead of, you know, the character he's supposed to be, you know. Now, I'll, I'll say this, though. He's a damn good actor. Um, I My wife had me sit down and watching a movie one night and I didn't know what it was. It was Carlito's Way. And yeah, it's a movie. We're like an hour into it, and all of a sudden I find out that Sean Penn is this guy. And that's Sean Penn? And I didn't know it up until that moment. And I was like really, really impressed with that character. I was impressed with the things he's doing. He's a good actor. But if I know it's him, I'm just like, ugh. And I have a hard time with it. Well, I think it just depends. And that's, uh, I think, on an individual basis of whether you, you some people want to know everything there is about about a particular subject and they don't they can separate the the actor from their art others can't and they may not and as you just as you said you you your your feelings for Sean Penn taint the way you see uh you know you view him in a film others can see well, it's two, two separate things why couldn't we see Nicolas Cage as Superman aside from the fact that he truly doesn't look like Superman I mean, you can give him black hair, you can give him more hair, you can do, you know, anything, but you know that that's Nicolas Cage. And as a result, you cannot seriously take him as Superman. Because of his, are you saying that because of his previous acting roles or because yeah. he's too he's too big a name? Well, I, I think part of it is because you know, even though he's been in hundreds of movies, he's got three characters, okay? He's got military, he's got white trash military, and then he's got criminal. Well, well excuse me, trash okay, criminal. you're saying he can't, so you're saying he can't be Superman because he's not a good enough actor. He's too typecast and allowing himself to play the same role over and over. He's shown in the past that he can play different roles, but he liked playing those enigmatic characters for a long time. And then he got away from that and started playing more of the hick roles and the hero roles. And so he, you know, again, you know, he did go for the, the big money stuff there for a while and that kind of spoiled him. Well, some but, not it's some actors can are just not suited for some particular roles. I mean, he's there's some roles that are 
that are uh, made specific. You know, they he's perfect for, and there are others that he's not. So I mean, I think right. that's it's. Yeah, but I, I, again, what did you know of Christopher Reeve or Henry Cavill before uh, either of them played Superman or Brandon Ruth? Now, well, I don't I don't take anything away from Brandon Ruth, uh, you know, Ralph, however you pronounce it, uh, for his portrayal in Superman Returns. He did exactly what was asked of him. Be Christopher Reeve. Yeah, that's just true. And, you know, as far as Christopher Reeve is concerned, you know, we, we saw him do other roles outside outside of, of Superman, uh, whether it was Somewhere in Time, Remains of the Day, Village of the Damned, which I, I never watched that one, but I'll tell you, Remains of the Day, you watch him and, you, and you, you understand there's an actor there. Or Death Trap with Michael Caine. Yeah. You, yeah, you know, he, he's definitely, I mean, that's, the, I know, that's, that's almost something completely different because that's where a role is overshadowing the actor. He can't get out from underneath the role that he created because he he, he was an unknown before he became Superman, and right. that's that's how everybody sees him now. Well, so, he did he did a better job getting out of it than George Reeves did. I mean, George Reeves was so typecast; he got completely cut out of a movie. He was in From Here to Eternity, but the audience was so distracted by the fact that Superman was on screen that the producers went and cut him out of the movie completely. Well, that may be more to do with the, uh, at the times when that film was made. Yeah. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, some people can't, you can't escape. You can't, it, it, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, it's a blessing that it's, it's, you're so popular in the public's eye, but then it's also a curse because you can't get out from underneath. You can't escape the public's eye. So they expect yeah. you, or they always want you to play that role. Like, this is what yeah, we like you yeah. as. We want you to be this role. We want Sean Penn to keep playing Spicoli. Right, right, right. Or, or Bruce Willis to keep playing John McClane. Right. Or you want, as you said, uh, uh, Nicholas Cage to play that kind of wild. Everybody expects the crazy Cage scene whenever movie he's in. Yeah. And that's why he's kind of become known known for that. Although he is, he's got a much. I think he's got a much larger range, but now he's kind of settled into a pattern. Yeah. But again, you know, it's, uh, there are directors that can get actors out of a pattern. I know that uh, Terry Gilliam gave Bruce Willis a huge laundry list of things that he was not allowed to do while they were filming 12 Monkeys. You know, no steely stares, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's, uh, again, you know, with, with Nicolas Cage, I think it was a different matter entirely. So when they put him in a Superman costume and then they did the flying screen test. You know, Tim Burton was laughing out loud as he was looking at it. And, you know, at that point, Nicolas Cage knew that he was never going to play Superman on screen. He still made them pay him $19 million not to do it, though. Hey, if you got to – if that, that's what they agreed on, then take <laughs> yeah. the money. Yeah, take the money. Take and the run. money, yeah. So, you know, I, again, you know, we, we're way, way, way off topic <laughs> at this point. But I, I think that the, the thing is, is that, I, you know, Byrne got painted into a corner with Alpha Flight in that, you know, he was asked to create a team that could fight the X-Men. He did. And because he did, the readership wanted more of that. They wanted more from him on that. And it was the one thing that I don't think he wanted to do. And again, it goes, I'm getting back into the making of the sausage. And, and, you know, we're not really getting into the character of John Byrne. We're just getting into the frame of mind of what happened to him back then and why, you know, Alpha Flight went the way it did. Is Basically, he didn't want to do it. Uh, well, not he, not he, this part here, but the, the series Alpha Flight. He could have walked away from it. He didn't have to do it. I mean, it was – I'm sure it was 
a well-paying gig and he had i'm sure his ego played yeah. a part of that this i created Absolutely. this i shouldn't let anybody else do it right. but if he felt so strongly that he didn't want to do it then to walk away i mean it doesn't it didn't by reading his run on alpha it doesn't feel like he kind of phoned it in it looks like he put forth effort and that's probably his I, work he probably has that kind of work ethic if he's going to do no, it I he's going to do it i think he worked really hard to come up with the stories that he did to create the storylines that he did but i think it was more of an effort than a labor of love and that's, i could see that yeah that's the thing. yeah okay well you know i think i've said everything i want to say on the book uh, again, I, I enjoy, <laughs> definitely enjoyed reading. I, I actually read it, I'd say probably six times in preparing for this because um, I really enjoyed just going over each panel and looking at that and with the Austin inks and everything. Though I, I got to say the splash page where you see Alpha Flight for the first time, it almost had an unfinished look to it, like like he wanted to do more with it. But then again, every time I see Aurora and North Star and they're supposed to have the shiny black hair, and it's just so much white with the dark highlights. Um, it, it just throws me off. Now, I, I he probably should have just done the blue and black. But, you know, then you would see more like what you see with Shaman. Yeah. And I guess it was just too much of that. He didn't want the same thing. But what else could you do? You got someone with blonde hair. You got someone with orange or brown or whatever. You, and then you got Vindicator with the white helmet, you know. He wanted to create a, a dichotomy here, you know, not a dichotomy, but a, a rainbow of colors. And, you know, he, he did that. But I think it it always made everybody look at it like, what the heck? It's just a style choice. And, and, and yeah. maybe it's because, well, he could have done what he's, do, he's doing on their costumes, which is kind of a light blue. But I don't know how that would look on their hair. I, See, I don't see it as, as light blue. Now, again, I guess that's coming from your print. Yeah. Uh, see, for me, it's black and white. Yeah, it's so they, went through, they went through, most of it's black and white, but not the hair. I'm talking about in the costumes, some of the highlights yeah. is kind of a pale blue. That may be because mine's been recolored. But yeah, I don't remember them doing it quite, their hair quite that way when we get to Alpha Flight, the actual series. I would have thought it was, their hair was a little darker, a little blacker. Yeah, but I mean that's just it's it's the same with you know look at uh, Quicksilver you know he has white hair in the book which yeah I read that as maybe a real like a real pale blonde a really real blonde hair but whenever they translate that to the to the the screen they always see it as white and they don't quite give him white hair they just give him kind of salt and pepper or kind of grayish hair well like, I like what they did with um. The in 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 uh, Days of Future Past with the Quicksilver that they used. In oh, there. see, I hated that. I hated that. I didn't. I I thought just make him just bleach his hair and make it absolutely just bleach bleach white. Yeah. Don't give him that kind of. Uh, but like Aaron Taylor Johnson, his Quicksilver, I, I don't know. He looked like a guy that was putting highlights in his hair. His hair did look more highlighted, right? Yeah, it, it, it looked like you know a professional stylist had worked on it and. You know, he didn't look like so. He didn't. You know, Pietro always had that. I've just been running look in his hair. Yeah. In the comics, when Byrne was doing it, you know, he always like just been just been running. But and and that's kind of what what I saw in the kid in Days of Future Past. I didn't see that in in uh, Age of Ultron though. That that it was just you know somebody who had his hair style. It was just kind of highlight. I mean, I I will say this. I like the the Age of Ultron Quicksilver better. The look and I like at least the hair and the look. Than I did 
Days of Future Past. Mm. But that's that's just me. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. I'm 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 looking forward to Age of Apocalypse, and we'll get to see us soon. Yeah, that comes out pretty quick. Do you want to do uh, some emails before we sign off? Yeah. Uh, now you're going to take the one that went to our Gmail address. Our one actual email. Yeah. Then you get some uh, Facebook yeah, comments to read. Yes. I will read this. Let me pull it up. This is from Mark Anthony Lacey. And this is a response to our Batman Superman live show we did at Area 51. And it says, hey there. I really enjoy your show and listen as often as I can. You do a terrific job. Just listen to the second episode of Batman v Superman. And while I I didn't care for Batman v Superman nor Man of Steel, I did enjoy your discussion. What I could hear of it anyways. I'm glad that you guys had a good time meeting up and doing the show together. But all the background noise uh, really got made it what you were saying hard to hear. Just uh, just something to consider for next time. Keep up the good work. So and uh, you do as burn fans proud. Take care, Mark Anthony Lacey. Uh, thanks for writing in, Mark. And I, yeah, that was our first live show. And when I was editing it, I did know that there was quite a bit of background noise and wasn't much we could do about it. We were they were. The comic that comic shop has a, like an area for gaming, so we had people doing games all around us. Yeah, in fact, that comic book shop. While they have comics, you know, comics there for sale, that is a gaming place, right? Really, it, I mean, it was wall to wall gaming, and you know, an area for comics and comic sales. Um, you can usually tell if they're a comic book shop or if they're centered on something else by the knowledge of the staff and. While the, the staff there was nice and knowledgeable in gaming and stuff, I you know the, one of the things I ask is I you know I asked him what they think of John Byrne, and the first guy I asked is like who, but the uh, the main guy that runs the place he he knew exactly what I was talking about obviously because he knew we were coming in yeah but uh, you know not all the staff there you know they're they're they seem to be more inclined towards gaming than anything uh, than that and that definitely seems to be their bread and butter considering. They had tables on the the left side of the shop. As you come into the shop, there was a huge gaming area off over to the right. And then to the left, there was also sets of tables and gaming over there. And then in the very middle section was where the comic books, statues, and, and you know other uh, uh, sci-fi fantasy uh, things were, were, were you know about that area. But uh, and of course a lot of graphic novels, trade paperbacks, and whatnot. But uh, it definitely seemed like gaming was more their focus than anything else. Yeah, and I, I, I thought we were going to go in there. We might have – I didn't know it was a gaming – kind of a gaming shop. So I thought we yeah. were going to have just an area, which I still uh, you know, appreciate them letting us come in and record our show. So if we do another live show, we'll have to, I don't know, either go in there maybe on a day when it's a little slower and there's not as much uh, gaming going on uh, or to find another venue. You know, we'll have to have to look around if we ever you know, get back together and do another. Yeah, no, they were really show. nice to us. They were really Absolutely. nice to us, and nobody gave us any trouble as far as no, you know, no. doing the show. Uh, nobody tried to interrupt or talk over us or anything. And it was just there was a lot of people in there that day uh, doing the gaming. When you do that type of gaming that they're doing, there's a lot of Star Wars gaming. There's a lot of talking going on. So you know, it, it's it's understandable. It did uh, you know cut in a little bit on on our audio, but I, I I don't think our audio was any more crowded than say Dinner for Geeks. No, so, Dinner for yeah. Geeks is, I think, well, it depends. And sometimes they have a loud background because they, yeah. people and, play and music. And they, they always have background music going on as well. Yeah, that, but, uh, but they do kind of, they do, like when I recorded with them, we were kind of in a corner 
and it was late and there were a lot of people there. So I'm sure that recording came out pretty good. But I mean, I hope it didn't. I hope the background noise didn't stop anybody from enjoying the show. Yes. Okay. Um, let's see. And that's the only email that we got regular. Now, I pulled these off of Facebook. Uh, the first one is from David Thompson. And it was in response to our uh, Batman, the, the, the same one that you just did there, the Batman v Superman roundtable uh, after us seeing the movie. And David writes, I finally got a chance to listen to the podcast. I'll keep my comments brief, but would like, uh, but it would be great to read other opinions. The good, Ben Affleck as Batman and Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Both were perfect casting choices and really nailed the characters. The neutral, Henry Cavill as Superman. I actually feel sorry for him because the writers just won't give him anything to work with. The bad, Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor. At first I blamed it on the writers, but then I realized the part just needed a different actor. Imagine those same lines spoken by Ben Kingsley. It would have had a much sinister and menacing... Oh, yeah, it would have been much more sinister and menacing. Excuse me. Heck, Kevin Spacey would dial up the creep factor 10x. Just think about Kingsley shoving the Jolly Rancher in a government dude's mouth. Ugh. <laughs> Overall, you hit on the big issues. The main plot was a mess and further hurt by the numerous subplots. The shoehorn of the other League members feel, felt forced and needless death at the end served no purpose. There is good, maybe even great. There is a good, maybe even great movie. But here it would need heavy, uh, it would need heavy, heavy edit with more emotional dialogue for Henry to show his compassion. Superman can't be a neutral person in a DCU. Superman stands for all things good, just, and optimistic. When Superman is the morally great character in your movie, something has gone terribly wrong. Don't even get me started on Flash with a ponytail. Yeah. My <laughs> wife heard my, uh, my comment about the uh, Mexican slacker, and she gave me a little pop on top of the head uh, and said, that's probably going to offend a lot of people. You, you should be sorry. And I am. So... <laughs> Uh, for any that, that might have been offended, I do apologize. Uh, I was just trying to be flippant there and it came out the wrong way. Going on, uh, we also had a comment from Gene Hendricks. And uh, now he was talking about our uh, Star Trek, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was uh, Batman. Uh, it was Batman v Superman or it was the uh, Man of Steel issue three. Okay. Uh, great episode. I'm going to have to bite the bullet and get these stories. I think, yeah, it's the Star Trek one. Star Trek. But then he says after that, thanks for the kind words about Generations coverage that Michael Bailey and I did. I'd still love to hear you guys talk about that series, though I'm always interested in other views. Smile emoticon. And, you know, that you know, as, as, as far as that goes, I've been wanting to do Generations for a while. Uh, that's going to, you know, because I just, I don't know where to begin, uh, where, where that goes. Because, you know, the... Generations and Generations 2 have definitely gotten a lot of coverage out there uh, by a lot of people. who had a lot of really good opinions and some I didn't quite agree with. Generations 3 gets a little flack and I understand why because it breaks away from uh, the, the way the storytelling elements of the first two really, really work together. And there's a, a, a chronological way of reading books, uh, the, the, the first series and the second series together. Yeah. Where you can, you know, read one chapter from the first book and then one chapter from the second book and then, you know, keep going back and forth basically so you can read it chronologically. But because of the structure of Generations 3 and it's going uh, further and further in history in, in both directions, uh, it kind of breaks that and you really have to work hard to get it all to work into a cohesive chronological unit. 
also, you know, they bring in a lot of, you know, they, they go way, way, way far out, uh, you know, past the history, past times that we're all really familiar with, too. Beyond that, um, the tragedy of the first series struck so hard, I, I remember, that the tragedy that was set forth in the third series, I thought was a little too heavy handed, a little too much uh, grief and tragedy to throw on Superman after all that time. I'd, I'd understand why a villain would want to do that, but you know the 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 idea behind uh, Superman and Batman is that the villains ultimately don't win. And the one thing that that you know the the reason why generations work so well, unfortunately, is because at one point they do let the villain win. Yeah, but. I didn't think that it, that it needed repeating in the third in the third series uh, like they did there. Well, well, we'll have to just look at that and see. I've read most of Generations. I have it. I haven't yeah. read all of it. I've got it. So maybe it's a special we can do and maybe cover it a little bit of time. Maybe try to cover it chronologically as you suggested, or maybe over. Maybe that's like we're doing with our Star Trek specials. Maybe that's something well, we I do. Know, I know that if if we do Generations, I really would like to bring in. You know, like Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey. I, I think that would be a lot of fun. Or even G, you know, even Gene Hendricks. Yeah. You know, he's, he's if Gene wants about to, if, yeah, Gene wants to do it. I mean, but, if he has but again, time. Gene and Michael Bailey have already did, you know, their coverage on it. I, I, I don't know that they want to talk about it again. Well, you may have to let it wait. You may have to let it sit yeah. for a while and kind of percolate before we let give it some more time between if they just talked about it, maybe maybe it's something you do at the end of the year or maybe at the beginning well, of next year, something that or maybe we can do it in prep for Justice League. That's true. That, that's a that's ways not, down, but that's not, that, a bad, that's not a bad idea. It'd be great to do something, you know, before and after that movie comes out, so we have, you know, we can do this part of Generations here and that part of Generations there. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Thanks, Gene. We do appreciate the the kind words and uh, the suggestion there. It's always something that's on our minds because, you know, as far as series goes, that's really one of my all time favorite uh, series and. I own it in so many different ways. I own the original prestige format books as well as the graphic novels, digital copies. Uh, I, I really like to see an absolute of that. Yeah, that would be nice. But I, I don't know. I don't know how they would do that. if they would take all three series and put them into one absolute edition. That would be my get. That'd be the one thing that I would save up for a year to get if I had to. Uh, I think we should we'd be amiss if we didn't kind of plug for Gene. He does he does many fine shows on the Choo Choo Freaks Network. He does Hammer the Hammer Strikes. He does uh, Anime Freaks with Dr. Bill Robinson. Mm-hmm. He does. Uh, and if you if you listen to Anime Freaks, you'll hear uh, probably emails from this guy that I know. His name is Tim yeah. Elliott, and this other guy I know his name is Brian Hughes because they seem to write into those guys uh, you know a little bit here and there. I'm, I'm kind of behind in writing into anime. What's what's his other one? I'm, I'm, I apologize, Jeannie, if you're listening to it right now. He does uh, Fight Club. Does he have Superhero Fight Club? Okay. Uh, Legends of the Superheroes? That, is that, yeah. Yeah. And he guests, he guests on a lot of the shows. So Gene's pretty prolific. He does uh, he does a lot of uh, a lot of great shows. Yeah. He recently posted on his Facebook page a uh, variation of the Knights Who Say Knee, <laughs> except with droids. And uh, – 
actually threw in threw in what I knew of of uh, my the nineteen say knee routine. You know the which I, I I'd like to hear Ben Burt's version of Eki 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 Patang Zoom Boing. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks, Gene. We do appreciate that. I got to get back to my uh, my letters here or my emails. Uh, the next one, of course, is another uh, email from David uh, message from David Thompson from Facebook. He's actually at first hawking the <laughs> the Burn Trek collection, uh, you know, because he was, I think, uh, writing about the uh, the the Trek story Stuck that we the- covered the. Romulan. Oh, hollow crown. Yeah. Hollow crown. And so, uh, yeah, he's talking about the, the, the star Trek, uh, collection, the John Byrne star Trek collection, which, uh, I got in hardcover off of Amazon actually not, uh, it, it, it was actually a really, really good price. So I was uh, really pleased with that. And of course I used the two true freaks link to Amazon on the two true freaks page, uh, so that I help contribute to our shows. Let's see. He says here, just a thought. It would be interesting to do a compare contrast against another Trek story penned by another comic writer. Burns seems to really capture the voices of the crew in the original Trek essence. I'm sure it could be debated as he is uh, the best, but it would be fun to really explore Burns' style against another. And then he says, my personal favorite I've plugged previously, Star Trek Dead of Honor by Chris Claremont, would offer just such a chance. Also, I think it's rotten for people to attack any comic artist with a long career who's still working. Let's face it. None of these guys, gals, are rich off of writing or drawing comics. Uh, and I'm going to stop right there. Uh, John Byrne is rich off of writing and drawing comics. It, I remember uh, even in the 80s uh, reading his profile. Uh, they, did, they did a little profile in the, the Marvel Comics page. And, you know, they said, what are your hobbies? And he says, drawing pictures, counting money. <laughs> Uh, you know, he, again, he was one of the rock stars of his era. And so he was able to command the best rate. Uh, even today, people are paying thousands of dollars to get burned to, uh, draw commissions. And I mean, he's making a lot of money off of that. He's making a lot of money off of the work that he's doing for IDW on the Star Trek Fumetti. And now he's getting ready to put out a comic book. This guy is not hurting for money. Now, that being said, there are a lot of comic artists that were very popular during the 70s and 80s who have fallen on hard times. Uh, they did not benefit from a lot of the uh, you know, creator rights uh, legislation that had been put into place uh, back in the day to you know, get a lot of residuals like, like some of the more current uh, artists and writers are doing. True. So, you know, again, you know, you hear about guys like, you know, Bill Mantlo, who I believe was suffered a stroke uh, and, and, and others who are living in near poverty now in their late days because, A, they can't get work that they used to be able to and they can make only the money they can from going to conventions if they actually, you know, get get offers to go to conventions. Well, and to be to be fair, they weren't at his superstar level. They were workmen like. Right, uh, artists that nothing to take take anything away from what they did, but they didn't quite reach. I mean, they're only a, a so few that can kind of rise to the top and be known as the superstars. You know, like Kirby or or Byrne or Neil Adams or Frank Miller, some of these names. Other guys that just you know that was their job. They went to work, they drew comics, and they made a living at it. And as you said, they 
a lot of them suffered from uh, the rights that weren't in place until, I guess, Shooter was one of the first ones that came around to kind of fight for the artists and writers yes. to get some of the royalties back from some of the stuff they were creating. Right. And, and, and also so that they could get back their original artwork as yeah. well. So they could sell that. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So again, you know, it's again, Byrne was, is, is definitely not one of those that, that that's hurting for money or, or Neil Adams or, or others. Um, he's sitting there talking um, about, you know, these guys, they're not getting rich off of drawing comics. And then he says, they keep working because they have a passion for it. And most likely because they still need to. Neil Adams is not another that slammed constantly is another that slammed constantly for his recent work. Look at the coming of the Superman uh, reviews. Is 2016 Adams as good or better than the 70s Adams? Probably not. Nevertheless, I still enjoy reading the current stories and admiring the change in the art. Now, I'll point back to uh, something I said on on one of our more recent shows about you know early burn, early Adams. And and uh, cigarette smokers. Now, I, I'm not a cigarette smoker. I never have been. But what I know from my wife and from other people is that they're trying to get that first drag contact high, you know, uh, a lot of times. And, and, you know, the next cigarette is never as good as that that first one. And when it comes to you know, the comic book art, when you discovered someone, when you discovered the art of John Byrne, you saw it in that way. But like any other artist, he grew, he changed, he modified his style. Some things people really liked, some things people didn't like. I know there was a period in the 90s where I thought his art kind of went away I didn't necessarily care for. But in recent years, I'm seeing that there's a passion and there's something else in his work that uh, makes it makes it quite enjoyable. I've, I've actually enjoyed uh, looking at uh, Blood of the Demon, which was one of the more recent things that he did before he stopped doing comic book art. And I liked uh, his stint on in JLA Classified. Uh, but there were, you know, some other series I did while I've got all the next men. Um, I don't think I've read them all the way through some of them I've read and the others I I pretty much looked through, but, uh, I, I didn't read them as intensely. Uh, part of it is they're not in the right sandbox for me. I mean, I love Star Trek and so I'll, I'll always enjoy a good Star Trek story. I love the DC and Marvel universes, but when I see John Byrne doing his artwork, you know, if he's, if he's doing star, star Wars, I mean, star Trek, that's great, but anything else, I really would prefer to see him back in the, the DC or Marvel sandbox. Those are the places where, you know, he cut his teeth. He showed his style. Now, will it look the same? No, it's, you know, his, his style has changed throughout the years. You look at, pretty much any of the artists, any of the rock stars that we've had, whether it's Neil Adams, Frank Miller, I'll even say so far as Keith Giffen, uh, and, and others through the years, they all changed. Bill Sienkiewicz, they all changed. Their styles changed and grew as they did. And you can't get them to go back to being the way they were. And you shouldn't expect them to. Well, any artist is going to change and grow when, when, as they progress on their journey to doing, you know, creating their art. And as you said, it's not, it's not fair to ask them to be, you know, to kind of remain stagnant and say, just, I like the way you drew here. Uh, always draw it that way. Or it's no any more fair than it's just ask a writer. Well, I like when you wrote like these type of stories. I don't like these others. So 
Right. So I think with any artist, you are going to, you can either go along this journey with them and you're, I think you're going to find things that, well, I don't like what they've done here. You may come back to them later. You may never come back and say, I only like the early stuff. So, I mean, I think it's the same as even if, say, their writing or drawing never changed, you yourself are growing and changing. So you may grow out of it even though they haven't changed. Well, so, I mean, when you sit there and you look at these guys changing, um, their, their art changing, uh, let's take a look at, at Kurt Swan. When you look at um, you know the earlier Kurt Swan work, there was definitely a, a fire and passion in it, and you saw some you know dynamic detail and such that that was really interesting. And my my favorite example of that is the Captain Thunder story, which was uh, when they just acquired the rights to Captain Marvel, but they didn't they didn't put him in the book. They they made up Captain Thunder, who's just like Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Except he had like a sunburst on his on the the his tunic rather than the lightning bolt, and he would say thunder and rub his belt and turn into to Captain Thunder, and it, it was gorgeous. It was beautiful, and, and and the fight between him and Superman was really really cool. But then you look at at Swan in the late seventies and the early eighties, and there's no pop to his art. Uh, it's you know it's changed, but it just it's it's stagnant and not as dynamic. And, you know, that's the, the vision of someone that's been drawing the same thing for so long, you know, that, you know, there's, there's no passion and no, no, no power to it. And I think that's, you know, ultimately what happened there. And, you know, he was doing it cause he needed the paycheck. He was doing it, you know, because that's what he'd been doing all along. And people looked at him as the Superman artist. Well, I think, it's exactly what you said. I think in some of these cases, these artists that maybe that's the only way they can earn their living. They may not want to do that anymore, but that's the only way they can earn an income. So they're right in a way they are grateful for it, but I'm sure there's also as a love hate relationship. I'm sure that, you know, oh, I've, you know, this yeah. is what I've got to do to make a living. So yeah, their passion probably not there. They're probably not focused uh, well, to, now, to produce such a quality product. Right. Now, did you look at the coming of the Superman? The, the Neil, Neil Adams? Adams? No, yeah. no. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, it's beautiful to look at. Um, now, it's not old Neil Adams. It is, you know, Neil Adams in, in, in later days. And you can see that, you know, there's things that have changed in his artwork. But it is still beautiful. And, you know, it's obvious, you know, it's been a while since he's done this, done this. And he's having fun with it. He's gone back to a bronze age style of, of story uh, told in the bronze age. But, you know, at the same time, you know, it's, it's done with today's sensibilities. So he's writing for, t- you know, today's readers. Um, but it's beautiful artwork in my opinion. Have to pick it up. Now, I, I don't, I know the critics haven't necessarily been as, as nice to it, but, uh, to look at it, it's it's beautiful. Now the story itself, mm. yeah, I've always heard Neil Adams is kind of they people take their shots at his writing. Yeah, because they didn't consider him to be a writer artist like Byrne. Um, they 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 thought of him first and foremost as an artist. You you, you team him up with Denny O'Neill or Mike W. Barr, or, you know, any of the the good writers of the day. You yeah. know, you've got something. Um, you know, again, 
he had the benefit of not playing in any sandbox for any great length of time. You know, he he was here, he was there, but yeah, he, he I, I don't recall him. Don't recall him being on any one book for so long of a period that you know he got wore out on any one character or another, which is the opposite of what happened with Kurt Swan. Yeah, you kind of get well, you get kind of typecast as an artist. You get typecast as to as what you're drawing. Right. Right. Uh, the last line here from David Thompson says, I'm not a Pollyanna and I don't excuse famous artists who are clearly still getting work, but don't put in the effort. See J.R. J.R. Art and the current Superman. Uh, Byrne and Adams still have great stories to tell art uh, to tell and art to do. If you don't like it, don't buy it. Now, I, I disagree on, on J.R.J.R. I don't think that he's you know not making the effort or not phoning it in. I think that he is just you know, doing a, a different style for the book. So he, it doesn't necessarily, you know, mirror the same look of something that he did in Daredevil or Thor or Spider-Man. I think that, you know, he's just trying to give it a little bit more something else. And that, as you'll see his work as he works on other things, I think he, isn't he doing some Batman work now? I think uh, on Rebirth, he's going to be doing Batman. Right. And, and yeah, I think that what you'll see from that is not going to look like his Superman work. Well, it may be that he's more suited for Batman than he is Superman. We'll see. We'll see. And and uh, didn't he do Batman Punisher or part of Batman Punisher back in the day when they, when they had the uh, – I'm not sure if it was the Amalgam crossover. It wasn't the Amalgam. I don't think he did – he did a lot of Punisher, but I don't know if he did Batman. I don't think that was – was that Mark Beckman? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I, I I'm, 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 for some reason, I'm seeing a vision of of J.R. J.R. doing Batman Punisher, but I could be wrong on That's that. That's possible. Anyway, uh, that is uh, the the uh, emails and Facebook posts and all that uh, for now. Now you can reach us again at our email address at gotta get burned at gmail com. You can also reach us on Facebook. We have a third degree burn uh, group with. Twenty seven members. We could really stand to have about sixteen thousand four hundred and thirty. <laughs> wow. So uh all of you listeners out there, be sure to get your friends, relatives, neighbors, uh the guy down the street that talks to himself and eats pickles. Tell every one of them about us, okay? And uh of course you can uh see us on iTunes as well. So if you you know, of course, if you give us a rating on iTunes, the the higher the rating, of course, the more people that get a chance to uh find out about us on iTunes. You got anything else? Uh, no, I think that's it. Just uh, uh, look, uh, keep your uh, eyes open for some more stuff coming out this month. We're, this is kind of our, uh, not official, but kind of unofficial X, uh, X-Men month so that we're doing. We obviously do these two books. We're going to do, uh, should we tell them what our commentary is going to be? Yeah. We're going to do, we're going to have a commentary on uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. And we will have a show on our reaction to X-Men Apocalypse. Uh, when it comes out at the end of this month. Yeah, we're not going to do a pre-show, but we're we going to do, a, do post, a, a, post a post-show. A post-show. Yeah. Um, and we'll try to get the gang all together for that. And try to find someplace a little more quiet. And we're, of course, going to continue our year-long salute to Star Trek. Star Trek. And uh, so you'll be seeing something on that also coming up soon. And with that being said, um, I guess we're ready to go, huh? I, th- I think we've uh, we've covered everything. I Excellent. think we can uh, we can sign off. So it is getting late. It is uh, for third degree burn. I'm Tim Elliott, and I'm Brian Hughes. No place to hide. No place to.
You know, uh, as I'm looking on uh, burn, the Burn Forum, he sure does take a lot of umbrage with, with uh, Chris Claremont and how Claremont would take credit for something unless someone directly asked him about it. You know, if, if someone asked him directly, did you invent Kitty Pride?" He would say, no, John Byrne did. But beyond that, he would always say, we did this, we did that. And Byrne always took umbrage at that. So he th- he th- so in his in Vern say Burn was the sole creator, not we. Well, I mean, and and you bring up a good point there because you know when it came to the character, Burn had described the character of Kitty Pride not as a brilliant genius, but just as an everyday girl. Yeah, and it was Claremont that that decided that she was going to be a brilliant genius, and I think that that is probably better uh, in the long run than having her be the ordinary teenager. And I say that because he he gave her ordinary teenager ideas. That's why she changed costumes so many times. Yeah, but change names. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and and change names. But you know, as the smarter teenager, she was more relatable for the average comic book reading kid. And I know that I you know the thing is is like I started reading X Men. Uh, golly, I, I guess I was about thirteen. You know. And so she was my age, and that—that's pretty much when I when I caught up with them is about the time when she joined the team. Well, all of so much of the X Men, not so much during the '60s, but at least I don't think they did it intentionally. But so much of when this was revamped, the idea of your mutant powers coming about when you um, when you hit puberty, and yeah. that you can relate to that awkwardness that all teenagers go through when their body's changing and all this stuff's happening. So they can relate to what's going on in the book. Right. And, and, but you know, the thing is, is like, as I'm sitting there reading it, I'm liking Kitty pride. And I, I hear this, I, I heard a voice in my head whenever I read that character and it turned out I was superimposing the voice of a girl I had a crush on. Aha. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> it was, uh, you know, that was interesting. So, uh, well, that brings a question if it's, Say Byrne says, I got this idea for a character. He sketches her out and he gives maybe gives Claremont an idea. Okay, this her name's Kitty Pride and she's 13 and, you know, gives her kind of a, a one page synopsis. This is kind of what she's like. Well, then if Bur- uh, Claremont goes on to mostly, even though Byrne is plotting, help, you know, co plotting, if, if Claremont is writing her, giving her dialogue for, say, the next couple years, right? I think he's as much as he's as much a creator, a co-creator of hers as Byrne is because he's developing her as much as Byrne is. Right. Right. So I think, I think that's, it's the whole Jack Kirby, Stan Lee thing. And I really don't, you know, the, I know the, the trendy thing now is to, is to kind of bash on Lee and say, Oh, he didn't, you know, he takes credit for all this, but he didn't do it, but it was all Kirby. And I don't know why it always has to swing one way or the other. It's like, it's either all Lee or it's all Kirby. 
And I, I never looked at it that way. I looked at it as they both did a job. They both did their job. And, you know, they worked together a lot. Now, you know, as far as, as far as, you know, Kirby went, it looks like Kirby, you know, did more of the, the, the heavy lifting when it came to the storytelling and, you know, Stan would come in and write what happened afterwards on a lot of that, but still, you know, writing out what happens with a lot of that is just as important as, you know, showing what's going on on the page. Well, right. I mean, look, if you look at the, the, at the amount of work that Lee was doing, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Kirby at all, but no. Lee was writing most of the books and he was right. editing them and he was kind of in charge of Marvel. So he was had he was wearing a lot of hats. Yes. So yeah, some of his stuff is kind of goofy, but I think it's it's like a Lennon McCartney thing. It's it worked. Yeah, it worked and they were both they both contributed to it cuz you have to admit that some of the Kirby stuff that he did when he was writing his own material in DC and we came back to Marvel, I don't think it's as strong. Now it's imaginative. It certainly is creative. Yeah, but I don't think it's for storytelling wise. It's not quite as strong as when Lee was doing it. You know, where the, they put it together. There was another minor point of contention that that I actually found interesting, and that that's in regards to Days of Future Past. Um, the one of the things that that Byrne took umbrage at was at the very end of the story, as Kitty Pride's mind is apparently going back to her younger body. Now. The way Burns says the story, you know, went was they saved Senator Kelly, thereby changing the future. And so Kitty's younger mind would revert back to her body. Older Kate, as she was there, would cease to exist. And that would be the end of the story. X-Men won. It was a clear win. At the end of the day, all things are great. But because Claremont went in and threw in that little impulsive kiss you know older kate giving her younger self a kiss in the ether whatever you want to call that some people called it uh, lesbian incestuous or whatever to me it's not that it's just you know one of those you see your younger self you want to say something or do something you know anyway giving by giving that kiss it nullifies the win because she's still going back knowing everything she knows and that that that's what burns problem with it is the fact that uh, she was able to do that said that, you know, it didn't change anything. And again, it didn't, apparently, because uh, for years they've been mining that alternate future. Well, but, I, that, but the, the thing is, is that they'd already messed that up. Vern already messed that up in the first place by by putting Rachel Summers in there. Rachel Summers as a character in Days of Future Past means that this isn't their future, but an alternate future. Because there's no way there was a Rachel Summers knowing that Jean Grey had been killed. She wouldn't have been able to grow up to that level of maturity knowing what we know after. But it doesn't matter. It's an alternate future. True. And that's not the same. I haven't read my X-Men in so long. That's not the same. Rachel Summers that eventually joins the X-Men around, oh, when they were hitting around 200. Yeah, that's that's the same one. Is that the same one from? Yeah, she, she somehow brought her entire mind and body over to the you know the reality that we were reading. Yeah, but see, that's a different character. It looks like when if you look at the character in Days of Future Past and the two issues, it looks different than because when they bring her actually back into the contemporary X Men, she's mm-hmm. she was um she was a hound, wasn't she? She was used to locate other mutants. Well, yeah, I mean the thing is, in, and they're saying that that actually happened before 
Days of Future uh, all the Past. Events, all the events of Days of Future Past. Yeah. Well, that's the. I mean, that's the. the you're going to run into that problem when you're doing. You're trying to retroactively. No, not retroactively, but when you're trying to carry on a storyline or. Right. It's a problem any time time travel story. If you go back and pass, go if you're in the future and go back to the past to alter something to prevent your future from happening, then you would suddenly disappear. And of course, right. that's the paradox. If you do that, then you you never existed to go back in time to fix the future to go. You know, it's that kind of you know. Right, but there's that, there's the uh, what they've been you know talking about on um, the re- the new TV show Legends of Tomorrow is that it takes a while for the future or the past to catch up with you. Catch up it. You know, so like, you know, you, you kill your grandmother in the past and you, you're still going to go through some stuff before you actually cease to exist. Well, it'd be like uh, Back to the Future. It takes yeah. a while for Marty to start disappearing. Right. It, it's all theoretical, though, of course. we You know, I'm, and, and I am one of those personally believes that you cannot go back in time. You can only go forward. But well, then again, that's that's accepting the fact that time is a is a uh, is nothing more than a concept that we've created. There's only the here and now, and the other before and after are different planes of existence, so to speak, that you can never reach. Did I just blow your mind, or no, no, no? I was just trying to think how I, I was honestly trying to think how I how I felt about time travel. I I, I kind of believe that you know just but anything is possible. We just haven't got got to a point of technology that we can accomplish something. So I, I mean, a lot, there are a lot of things that say, "Well, that goes against all laws of physics." But who knows? A thousand years from now, who knows what kind of science we're going to have? So I don't know. I don't. I this mean, is I, true. This is true. But I, I, I still, I, th- I think the laws of physics are not something that Congress can, you know, overwrite. No. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, maybe we'll learn something more about the laws of physics as we go on. But I think that were anybody to find a way of traveling to a past time, I don't think they would actually be able to physically affect it. They might be able to observe it, you know, like the, like a guardian of forever kind of thing. But, again, there would be such strong, strong legislation and control over it to make sure that nobody does try to go back and change. Oh, that, that's where you get time cops and you get yep. Jean-Claude Van Damme. He's got to travel the time stream, making sure everything's, uh, I hated the way that movie ended. <laughs> now think about that. Think about that. The end of that movie, he's saved his wife. All right. Now in his reality, she has been dead. What? 10, 15 years, right? Something and he's like spent the, that 10, 15 years just, suffering and lamenting and, and, and all that. And, you know, he hasn't dated, he hasn't done anything. He's just been doing what he's doing. And then he finally saves her. But because he was time traveling at the time that she was saved, his mind never catches up. He comes back home and there she is. And she has spent the last 15 years with a guy he doesn't know because that was a happier version of him that saved her in the first place. I have to watch Time Cop again. I've got it. I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen it in... I haven't seen it in a long time, but I just remember that the ending really pissed me off. <laughs> well, honestly, most time, most movies and TV shows that deal with time travel, they have to kind of bend their own logic because if you, if you, if you stood to what seemed to be logical, as we just said, if you if you're in the future and you go back to change something, then that future's gone, and then you know that's, yeah. that's that paradox. That paradox, it would be boring. So there's got to be you know there's always well. 
you were protected by the time nexus, so you remember what happened. Or, uh, you know, the, the the theory is that if you go back, every time you can never truly go back in time because when you do, you're automatically creating a separate. Just look at the, uh, you know, the uh, the Marvel two and one number fifty where Ben Grimm goes back in yeah. time. He creates an alternate timeline, so he fixes that Ben Grimm. But when he goes back to his present, he hasn't changed himself at all. So that's truthfully, time travel can you can kind of do whatever you want to with it to fit your story. So yeah, okay. yeah, okay, we agreed to, to say that, but on takeoff. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to tutufreaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Alright, I'll be mayor.